Jordan and Sandy. It's good to pray. One of the themes of today. Actually, uh, as I was in North Carolina and they were very worried about Hurricane Matthew coming down, I did feel somewhat guilty for being called Matthew. I hope it wasn't my fault or ironic, named after me. But um, looks like it's kind of burnt itself out before it's got too bad there. I had a, had a message from Donnie Griggs from One Harbour this morning. He sent me some pictures of him uh, grilling a load of meat. And he said, even if we've done a hurricane, at least we'll be full. Which very much sums up Donnie's approach to life. Uh, I just thought I'd be back on, on my time in the States. Been away the last two Sundays. First Sunday weekend I was in Houston, Texas. At One Life Church, church with Brian Barr. And then uh, this past week been in North Carolina at One Harbor Church. Uh, last week was an advanced gathering. People from across the States gathering together there. And then last Sunday I stayed on to speak at One Harbor. And... Uh, as always, when you go to a different country, you kind of observe the, the similarities of people all over the world. People all over the world are basically the same. People have the same kind of desires, the same kind of needs, the same kind of wants. Um, but also, cultures are very different. And even in America, which is you know, so, so parallel to us, we've got sh- so much shared history, we pretty much speak the same language. Um, th- there, there are big cultural differences, and there's things that when you go to the States, you think, wow, that's a bit different, that's a bit odd, and similarly when guys from the States come here, there's things about how we do things in the UK, and it's very easy for us to assume that one particular cultural way of doing things is normal, or even to assume that a particular cultural way of doing things is better than another culture, and uh, that usually isn't the case, and one of the things that we've been learning as we work through James's letter, which we're finishing off today, is that we're not to judge by externals, we're not to be worldly in our thinking, uh, but we're to... Uh, see things in a different way and uh, as those of us who are Christians we uh, mustn't get trapped by our kind of our, our own culture and I uh, think that somehow represents Christian culture or better culture and there's things we can learn from people around the world we need to be uh, beware of thinking that we're normal uh, in the UK uh, we have our way of doing things other people have their way of doing things and there's things that we can learn from one another uh, I've got a couple of pictures to show you there's um, I was reminded about how important facilities are, how important buildings are. We often talk here about facilities facilitating the mission. This is One Harbour's building, their main building. They meet in three different locations. And they just uh, bought this building last year. It's a big warehouse. And uh, they they did a fantastic job of hosting hosting the gathering we're in, very hospitable people. But part of the reason they could do that so well is because the building was ideally geared up to it. And it just reminded me again about how important facilities are and uh, how we must be unembarrassed about spending money on buildings. Sometimes we can get a bit anxious about spending money on bricks and mortar. Oh, no, we're spending it on stuff. Uh, But actually, the the bricks and the mortar, the facilities, facilitate the mission. They help us do the things which God called us to. I particularly like the baptistry they used. Next picture, Andrew. I had a big horse trough, had some baptisms when I was there, which was great. And I love this horse trough. I thought I might try and get similar one for here because we're having to borrow the one from Wilder Road at the moment and I thought maybe a big horse trough could be the answer to our so I've been googling them and I found one somewhere in Somerset which is not quite as good as an American one uh, but I think it might do so I might trundle off to Somerset and get a horse trough as a baptistry uh, something else which really stood out to me as often does particularly when I'm in, in Donnie Griggs's world is, is it's good to be generous and generosity is, is really good fun and um, picture here of uh, Matt and Ali Gould, who are planting a church in Provo in Utah. Provo is the epicenter of Mormonism in the States, so uh, legalistic, uh, uh, dead religion really, 
and they're seeking to plant a church where there's a, a lived experience of the reality of the presence of God through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, Matt's been working as a delivery driver to support himself while he's planting the church. And so just kind of a spur of the moment thing, we decided to take up an offering for him, took up an offering, raised enough money so he can now go full time working on the church plant. And, and that was just such fun to do, to be able to give a bunch of money so that this guy could be released into full-time service in his church. Uh, should be just one other picture of us praying together, uh, reminded again about how important partnership is. Uh, we talk about planting and strengthening churches, that's, that's what the advanced family of churches which you're part of, that's what we're committed to, uh, planting and strengthening churches and that partnership is so significant to be connected with people in other countries, other parts of the world, in the UK, to be working together, have that sense of partnership with them. And um, it's great when we're actually physically in the same room, and certainly we've been blessed by having other people over the last few months come and be with us here. I was glad to be able to go and reciprocate somewhat there, speaking there. Um, but uh, that partnership is, is, is so wonderful and, and so fruitful. Uh, actually, this coming week, a bit unusual usually and, and, and not great timing, but I'm away again this coming week. I'm in Turkey from Tuesday morning to Friday night um, at, at a, a gathering of uh, the teams, of all the teams that have emerged out of New Frontiers over the last few years. And this is something which just happens once every four years where the different leadership teams for different teams get together. So it's four years since I've seen some of the guys that will be there. So it'll be great to catch up with people and hear about what God is doing. And I'm sure that one of the things we will hear about is churches in difficult parts of the world because many in our family are seeking to plant and strengthen churches in tough places. There'll be people there from Islamic majority nations and other situations where things are really tough. Uh, hear increasing stories from the Russian world about how difficult it is increasingly to uh, be an evangelical Christian in that context. And there'll be people from those kind of contexts who are going through real difficulty. And the letter that James writes is written to churches who are in those kind of situations. Letter of James is written to communities under real pressure. And even as we're here and as we don't have those, some of those pressures, we need to remember that we're in partnership with those that do and it's, it's good to pray. It's good to pray for a situation like Aleppo which seems so massive and huge and it's good to pray very specifically as well for Matt and Ali in uh, Provo, Utah or for people seeking to plant churches in Kazakhstan or in our friends in Istanbul uh, to stand with those who are seeking to serve God in places where there are many demands and many pressures. And James in this letter describes what it looks like to live as a people in exile. And the Christians he writes to would have literally been in exile because most of them would have started off in Jerusalem and then because of persecution they were scattered out and went to Syria and they're seeking to make new lives for themselves in Syria, uh, establish some kind of security for themselves and gather in churches. But there are marginalized people, there are people who are easily exploited. Now for us, in our context, things feel different. We haven't had to flee from our homes. We don't have the same sense of exploitation. Uh, we're not so persecuted as Christians. Uh, but I think James would say to us as well that we need to know that we live as exiles in the world as well. If you're a Christian, there's a sense of this is our home, but we're also aliens here, that we live differently, we have a different value system, a different set of beliefs, and uh, that can be challenging, that brings its challenges. Sunday morning gathered together, it's fine, but Monday morning back out in the world, it can be tough, and that's really what James 
wants to help us with how to live as a Christian on Monday morning, how to live every day in the light of forever. So we're going to finish off the lesson. We're going to read chapter 5. I'm going to break it down into sections. There's enough stuff in this chapter to spend weeks looking at it, so I'm just going to give you some headlines and uh, hopefully draw some stuff out which will help us to live as faithful Christians tomorrow morning as well as this morning, help us to live every day in the light of forever. On page 717 in these Bibles, if you want to follow along. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fastened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person who does not resist you. Fiery language. Now, I wonder how um, you feel about the rich. Uh, when I was away, one of the headlines I caught was the, the, uh, the accounts of Kim Kardashian being robbed in Paris at gunpoint. And however much it was, some reports I've read said she had 8 million quid's worth of jewels, others said 5 million. Anyway, it was, a, it was more than Grace has got in a jewellery box, that's for sure. Um, and I wonder how we feel about that. Some of, the, some of the guys I met last week in North Carolina had come from Orange County in California, and, and uh, they kind of knew directly the Kardashians living in that crazy place. Uh, but maybe for us, we maybe feel a bit more indifferent. Or maybe, actually, we have a bit of a sense of, well, she's got her comeuppance. It's easy to feel like that about somebody like Kim Kardashian. Actually, it's easy to display kind of envy, and even that sense, if we feel anything of, well, she got what she deserved in a way, that's actually just a, that's one facet of envy, and it's easy to get envious of the rich. The um, worldview in which James writes would have probably had some rather different ideas about the rich from how we often think, though. So, in a, in a kind of a biblical framework, not, 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 not all the rich are wicked, but all the wicked are rich. That would be pretty much how people that James is writing to would have thought. Anybody who's ri- wicked, they, they always seem to be the rich people. That was the kind of world in which they lived. And, th- and the Bible does say that wealth can be accumulated in a righteous way. And especially if you read the book of Proverbs, it's full of practical advice about good stewardship, financial integrity, about setting stuff aside, about building stuff up, about watching over your, what you've got and... And, and living in a way where you, you, you can provide for yourself and others, and, and wealth can be accumulated in a way that is righteous. But more often the Bible speaks about how riches tend to be gained wickedly, and how riches tend to be gained on the backs of the poor. And of course the, the world in which James lives, and those who are reading this letter in the first place live, is a different kind of economy. It's a, it's a laboring economy, and an agricultural economy, and for a day laborer, for an agricultural laborer, you depended on your day's wage for that day's survival. The deal was you worked a day and you got paid at the end of the day, cash in hand, and that was just about enough to support you for that day. And if you were denied work, or if you were denied your wages at the end of the day's work, well, you had nothing else to live on. That was your, it's subsistence living, it's potential starvation every day of the week. And 
what James is describing here is the wicked rich who are abusing the poor, those who are denying the worker his wages, who are exploiting the marginal and the vulnerable. And God cares about this because God is a God of justice. And actually when we're praying about big world events, where there's a just injustice, we, even if we don't know how to pray, if there's injustice, we can pray with clarity because we know that God cares about injustice. He, he opposes it. God is a God of justice. And the Christians that James is writing to would have been on the receiving end of this kind of injustice. They were a marginalized people. They would have been easily exploited. First of all, they were Jews, which we tend to be a persecuted group. Then they were Christians. They were persecuted not only by non-Jews, but they'd be persecuted by other Jews. And then they were refugees. They had left where they came from. They'd escaped. They'd gone to other places. And so they were bottom of the pile. They were easily exploited. They were the kind of people that somebody might say, come and work for me. And then he would have withheld their wages and said, well, if you come back tomorrow, I'll pay you tomorrow two days. And in that kind of world, if you miss your pay three, four days in a row, well, you, you are getting very hungry because you have nothing to live on. And those are the kind of people that James is writing to. And James is saying to them, look, there will be a reckoning. God will call to account those who exploit the poor. That's good news. In our context, though, we might read what James says here and struggle a bit because the language is, is strong. We don't often say about the wealthy, you're going to weep and howl. Maggots are going to eat you. You're going to be consumed by flames. It's not the kind of language that we tend to use about about the wealthy in our society. And and largely that's because it reflects the fact that by and large most of us are pretty comfortable. That we don't have to rely on a day's wage to survive that day. We we most of us have we've got some food in the cupboard. And we can survive for a few days and we've got some resources. But imagine yourself in the place of the exploited. Imagine that you're that exploited day worker, that day laborer, and you're being exploited by a rich corrupt boss. And then the word of God comes to you and says, don't worry, one day this guy's going to get his comeuppance. A reckoning is coming. That's Actually, that's good news. That's a comfort. And James would also say to us not to envy the rich. It's so easy to slip into envy of the rich, to wish we were them, to wish we had what they had. And James says, but don't, don't do that. And especially don't envy those who are successful because they've been wicked. Don't envy them because they're destined for judgment. And, and Christians are, are to live differently. Our, our goals in life and the way that we think is to be different. Christians aren't to live that way, and so we're to live patiently. And he describes this in the next few verses, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. How, how should the Christian live? Christians should live patiently. And that's difficult because 
uh, our age doesn't encourage patience. A theme song for our age could be the Queen hit from 20 years ago, I want it all and I want it now. It's kind of the, the theme tune for our age. We want things immediately, we want them quicker. We're used to things getting quicker and for us a, a mark of success is that stuff happens quicker. The line is shorter and the internet is faster and the microwave operates more quickly than the previous one did. Speed is valuable to us. Our drive is for things to be faster. And that makes sense if this is all there is. If all there is is this, then it makes sense to try and cram as much in as we possibly can, to get as much done as fast as we can before life ends. Of course, the, the consequence of living that way is it's a bit like people end up living with permanent emotional jet lag. It's an exhausting way to live. And James encourages a very different perspective. He says that rather than being like a stressed executive, we're to be more like a patient farmer. And if you're a farmer, you know that the harvest is coming, but you also know that you have to be patient. You know that you don't put the seed in the ground and the next morning the harvest is ready. No, you have to wait. You have to be patient. There can be weeks or months of delay as you wait for the harvest to come in. And also you need to know your dependence upon God. He talks here about the early and the late rains coming. And biblically speaking, that's a sign of God's blessing. In Deuteronomy 11, God promises the people of Israel the early and the late rains. And in the climate of the Middle East, farmers are dependent upon the early and the late rains for their crops to grow and mature and be ready for harvest. So we have to be patient, James says, like the farmer. Now, how do we do that? Well, we do it by living with endurance. And he throws in some other examples. He talks about the prophets. So the prophets were steadfast under pressure. In times of difficulty, times of hardship, times of challenge, they were steadfast. They endured. They persisted. Uh, while I was away, you had Phil Wolfie and the team from Bedford come down to help us to grow more as a church and developing a prophetic culture. Well, part of the way that we have a prophetic culture is by being patient. Patience is prophetic. Having the patience of the farmer, enduring, trusting, not giving up, saying, yeah, we believe. We don't necessarily see the harvest now, but we know it's coming. We're trusting God. We're dependent on God. We're believing him for the early and for the late rains. And st stuff might be difficult at times, but we're going to be patient. We're going to endure. We're going to be committed and commitment isn't something that we tend to be very good at in 21st century Britain. We, as a people, we tend to like to keep our options open. Uh, when I was, a few years ago, when uh, I was kind of in my 20s, 30s, there was a lot of talk about Generation X, which I was part of, and how we were the generation that didn't like to commit, liked to keep our options open. And now the next generation, those in their 20s, now the millennials, but they, they're even, even more like that. They like to keep their options open. And as a society, we like to keep our options open. There's always that, well, I can't quite commit because another option might come along. Another option which might be better. And so I need to keep my options open. And we tend to be led by our emotions. Rather than just making a decision and sticking to it, we tend to be led by, well, how do I feel today? And we can also suffer from options paralysis. That there's just so many choices for us to be faced in life that we can end up in a kind of a panic, not doing anything. I don't know what to choose. I don't know what to do. And all those things can undermine our commitments. And if you're a Christian, you're called to discipleship. You're called to become more and more like Jesus. And part of that is 
actually learning to be a committed person, to be a reliable person. And that's displayed in all kinds of interactions between us as people. Some things are very obvious. Yesterday I was standing right here in this lot, uh, leading the service as John and Molly got married. It was a great day. It was brilliant, wasn't it, Steve? Fantastic day. And um, John and Molly, of course, were making a commitment. They were saying, this is, we're making this commitment to one another. Before God, before you, witnesses, this is a promise. This is how we're going to do it. This is how we're going to live. It's a commitment. It's very clear in marriage. But it should be clear in all other kinds of things as well. That if we say we're going to be at something, we turn up. We don't drop out. If we've got a, a responsibility that we see it through, that we honor it, that we're committed to one another, we're committed to the things that God has called us to. We're not driven by our emotions. Oh, I didn't feel like it that time. I, I felt like it when I said yes, but then I didn't feel like it when it happened, and so I didn't do it. No, be committed. Be reliable. Not always keeping our options open. I can't say yes to coming to that. I can't say yes to doing that thing because something else might happen. No, you just commit and you honor your commitment. That's part of being patient. It's part of being steadfast. It's part of being prophetic. If you want to be more prophetic, be more committed. Be more steadfast. Be more patient. Sometimes we can think of church as kind of a therapy center. Let's come and have an hour and a half to kind of do some personal therapy. Actually, the church is much more like an army. We're called to a mission. We're called to be involved in reaching the world for Jesus. And the thing about this army is that commitments aren't enforced by contracts or pay. We don't do things legalistically. We do things out of love. It's because Jesus loves us and we love him and we love one another. We live every day in the light of forever, in the way that we serve each other and honor the commitments we make. And James says that the steadfast are blessed. And uh, being blessed is, is a description of what is objectively true. If you are a Christian, you've stepped into blessing. Sometimes um, we can think of blessed as, as happy. And it's good to be happy. At the beginning of the year, we did a series on joy about pursuing happiness and finding happiness in God. But happiness is a, is a subjective emotion, whereas being blessed is an objective state of affairs. And James says you're blessed when you're steadfast. You're blessed when you stick at it. You're blessed when you're like the farmer, waiting patiently. You're blessed when you're prophetic and endure. Then you will experience the blessing of this affects how we do life together. He says, be patient to establish your hearts so that you might not grumble against one another. And, if, uh, and the reason he says that is because when we go through times of difficulty, we, that's when we tend to grumble. You know, you know how it is. I know how it is myself. It's in the times of pressure that we get grumpy. It's when life is too full and there's too much going on and we're facing difficulties and we're facing pressure and we're feeling under stress. It's then that we get grumpy. And when we're grumpy, we can easily start to grumble about one another and grumble about all kinds of stuff. And that becomes destructive. And James says, don't do that. Be patient. Be steadfast. Don't grumble against each other. Display a prophetic, farmer-like steadfastness that keeps us in the place of God's blessing. Because God is near to us. Jesus is near. The Lord is compassionate. And the Lord is merciful. And even when things are tough, that Monday morning when everything seems to be against you, live 
with integrity. Live with your commitments. Live in the blessing of God. And that's why he then jumps to something which, taken in isolation, might seem strange. I'm just sandwiched into the flow of the letter. Verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, when James says here, don't swear, he's not talking about don't use naughty words, don't use bad language. He's talking about oath-taking. It's when we say something and then kind of qualify it by swearing on something else. And uh, it's interesting that James makes this point because in the Old Testament, many people take oaths. They say, I'm going to do this, and they swear on something. They say, I swear on this, that I will honor my words. But things shift once we get to Jesus. In, in, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, don't swear on anything. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And James picks up that instruction here as well. And the point that both Jesus and James are making is about personal integrity. Because the thing about oaths is that oaths can be broken or oaths can be weaseled out of. You can get a good lawyer and you can weasel out of the oath that you took. But for Christians, oaths should be redundant. We don't, we don't need to make an oath. Because we simply say yes or we say no and we keep to our words. We don't have to qualify what we're promising. We don't have to say, honest, I swear to God I didn't do it. Simply say, I didn't do it. And we tell the truth. We don't need to say, honest, you can really believe I promise in my mother's grave I will do it. No, simply say, yes, I'll do it. And we do it. It's about personal integrity. And we can walk in integrity because God is with us. We, we live truthfully because the presence of God is with us. So James says in verse 13, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six years, six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. James says, we live steadfast lives of integrity. We're to pray and to pray and to pray. Are you in trouble? Pray. Are you happy? Pray. Are you sick? Pray. And call the elders to pray as well. Uh, on Wednesday evening when we had our life groups here and the little group Grace did, uh, I think it was Pat, said, what, what, what do the elders do? Good question, what do the elders do? Well, one of the things we do is this. We anoint the sick with oil and we pray. Such a skincare oil. Ian. <laughs> I'm sure it doesn't make much difference, but really it should be olive oil. Anyway. <laughs> Almond oil. Uh, maybe she's got a nut allergy. If you've got a nut allergy, we can't anoint you. <laughs> but one of the things that elders do is anoint the sick and pray for them. So nice. I smell something. 
And uh, uh, going back to my phrase. And oil, oil, oil isn't, praise God, oil isn't necessary to be prayed for. <laughs> but, and actually, this is the only place in the, in the New Testament where we have this instruction about pray with anointing of oil. But the thing about the anointing of oil is that it's, it's a sign of the presence of God. If, you, if you're sick and you ask for prayer and we anoint you with oil, you're aware you've got oil on you. It's oil, is, oil is oily by definition. And you know it's on you and it's a sign of the, of the anointing of the presence of God. And, and God is with us. God is with us. He's here with us. The, um, the guys in the tattoo shop just down the road seem to be increasingly unhappy about us being here. I don't know if you've noticed, they've got a big sign up in the window now saying God is dead. Uh, they're not happy about, about us being here. Uh, well, God is alive. God is present and God's with us. God's here. And so when we pray for the sick and anoint you, it's a sign of God's presence, the reality of God at work amongst us. Uh, when we break bread in a moment, another physical sign of God being with us. If, if you are sick, uh, there'll be elders by the table and we'd love to pray for you and anoint you with oil and pray in faith. And this means that we can also confess to one another. James says, confess. Confess to each other. Confess your sins. And that would have been a big ask for the people that he's writing to. Because this, this world, this New Testament world, this Middle Eastern world, is, is an honor culture. And in an honor culture, you don't confess your sins. You don't admit you are wrong. And in an honor culture, you keep things very private and you fight your ground. And if somebody accuses you of something, you don't confess. No, you put up your fists and you fight them and say no. And you stand your ground. That's what an honor culture does. And Jesus says, in the church, things are different. In the church, you don't have to stand. You don't have to stand on my personal honor in the church because actually what we're anointed in is the honor of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who wasn't ashamed to hang naked on the cross and carry our sins we can take the masks off of him. We can be truthful, we can be honest, we can confess, we can apologize, we can say sorry, we can admit our weaknesses and our failings. God is with us. And James uses Elijah as an example of someone who prays. Now, the story of Elijah is told in 1 Kings, 1 Kings 17 and 18, tells this particular story about a time when Israel was ruled by a very corrupt king. And there was great injustice. And in judgment, God withholds rain in response to Elijah's prayer. For three years and for six months, there's no rain because Elijah's prayed there wouldn't be. And then Elijah prays and the rains come. And it says Elijah prayed fervently or Elijah prayed with prayer. But the point that James makes here is that Elijah was just like us, a man with a nature like ours, a man just Prayer isn't the work of Christian superstars. Prayer is the work of Christians. God is with us, and so we pray. We pray. We pray for fruit. And like the farmer patiently waiting, we pray, believing that God will bring the harvest in. And as we pray, we're also to watch out for one another, which is why James finishes his letter with what otherwise might seem a slightly cryptic instruction. He says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. 
really where this letter lands is like this. Do what the gospel demands and help others to do it as well. Help one another live every day in the light of forever. Help one another stay out of sin. Help one another live lives of integrity. Help one another stay in that place of knowing the blessing of God. Help one another know the reality that God is merciful and compassionate. The Lord is at hand. He's near. Help one another be steadfast. Help one another be patient. Help each other to live as Christians. Monday morning as well as Sunday morning. You know, today is the uh, mark the sixth month anniversary of us starting meeting in this building. Um, six months in which, is, has, in which a lot has happened and six months which seems to have gone pretty fast. And God has been with us. God has been faithful. God is near us. And it's been wonderful to be here. And it's, it, we're together and got this room of people in it. And we're accessing the sacredness in this tree parlor with the reality of God's presence. It's great. Love it. But let's pray. Let's be a people who pray. Let's be a people who help one another on Monday morning as well as Sunday morning. And let's be a people who wait patiently and pray for the harvest to come. Let's pray for the early and the late rains. Let's pray for fruit. And let's be faithful because Jesus is faithful to us. Amen? Let's pray. And then I'm going to lead us into communion. And we'd love to pray for any who are sick as well. Yeah, King Jesus, I thank you that you are one who did hang on the cross in our place, that you weren't ashamed to carry the shame of our sin. And uh, Lord, as we come to take bread and wine, we want to be those who aren't ashamed as well to take our masks off. Thank you that we don't have to fight our corner. Thank you that you have fought and you've won on our behalf. And I pray that we would be those who live patiently, enduringly, we are farmer-like, we're pathetic in our enduring patience. And I pray that we would, yeah, tomorrow morning, be as faithful to you as we are, sitting with our brothers and sisters here on Sunday morning. I pray that we'd live every day in the light of forever. Jesus is coming again. You're drawing near. Thank you for what you've brought us into. Thank you that uh, we live in this world as those who have... Uh, a role to do here and pleasures to enjoy here, but you've also called us to citizenship of heaven. We know who we are as the people of God. I pray that we would remember that and live that way. Help one another in this time. I pray that you would be at work amongst us now. I pray as we take bread and wine, as we pray for one another, that God, you'd minister to us. We'd know the, the nearness of our Savior and the power of your working. Thank you. You're not dead, you're alive. Thank you, Jesus, that you have you were raised to new life and you reign over all things. And you're making yourself known to us today. And as we experience even the power of your presence amongst us, we come to the table. We take the bread and the wine, representing your body and your blood, your anointing with oil, representing the presence of God.